we're in a series talking about kingdom community, and we've been going through the gospel of Luke. We have been looking at what Luke says about God's vision for community, how God wants to create a kind of community that is not just, not just community, but a kingdom community, a, a community that is defined and marked by what it looks like when Jesus is king and how that would transform all the different relationships that we have, how it transforms the way that we relate to our kids, how it transforms the way we relate to our spouses, our friendships, community groups, our coworkers, all of it. What does it look like when Jesus is king? What kind of community does that create? And we've been talking about a lot of things. I think uh, that we have two more weeks after, after today. So we've been talking about all sorts of different values and practices of what that looks like as a kingdom community. And if you've been here and if you've been kind of listening and paying attention, we, we want that vision that God has for us. We want that kingdom community vision. We want it in our marriage. We want it in our family. We want it in our friendships. But in order to have the kingdom vision of community that God has for us, we need power. We need a power to be able to do it. I don't know if any of you watched the Olympics that have been on uh, recently, and you see certain athletes do things, right? My kids were watching the pole vaulters and just like, how, how is that even possible? And I remember watching that when I was a kid and like try to grab a broom and, you know, it doesn't, like, oh, it doesn't really work. I don't understand. And you see those things and you go, that's amazing. But you and I, or at least I, maybe, maybe you can, we can't do those kinds of things. We can't do the pole vaulting. You, can't, you can barely walk you know, in a straight line, much less do the gymnastics. We can't do that kind of stuff. They have a power that we don't have. And in order to do the kind of vision when you watch on TV and you see these amazing feats, you need power. And the same is true with all sorts of things in life. If you want what something can offer, you want a vision of what something can be, you have to have power. I mean, think about this with my phone, that uh, an iPhone has so much power in it. I can't get anywhere without Google Maps. I literally can't, I, I can't get anywhere without Google Maps. My wife makes fun of me a lot of times. She's like, it's, you know, just yesterday we were driving back, we went camping for a couple nights, and we were probably like 10 minutes from home. And she's like, you know where, how to, how to get there. And I was like, I need the map on still. I just, I need the map. It's, you, it's, the phone has so much power. It's got apps that do all sorts of things. People meet their spouses on their phone from dating apps. You've got Google Maps, you can order food. You can do anything on your phone, but if the battery's dead, if it's got no power, it's just a, I don't even, it's just a, a paperweight. It's nothing. You need power to be able to experience the vision of life or all of the features of life that can happen through a specific thing. And the same thing is true as we talk about a kingdom community. We could cast this beautiful vision and say, isn't this amazing with humility, and isn't this amazing with patience and forgiveness that we talked about last week, and grace, and all of this stuff that can happen. But without power, it'll just be a vision. It'll just be something that we look at and admire, but don't actually have ourselves. And oftentimes, oftentimes when we try to get the vision that God has for our life, for our relationships, we try it in trying to learn more, maybe just trying to harder ourselves to experience it and work harder at it, at our relationships or in the various things. But oftentimes it leaves us frustrated because we don't have the power. But what if there is a power? 
What if all the different things that we've talked about and even things that we haven't spoken about, what if there is a power that, like a battery, like muscles on an Olympian, what, what if there's a power that could inject into all of the different communal relationships that we have and help us not just see what God has for us, but enable us, empower us to experience what God has for us. And the truth is that God does have a vision for our life, but he also has power that he wants to give us. So that's what we're talking about today. How do we experience God's power? How do we get God's power? And we're going to look at two different stories side by side. They're really placed right next to each other to show us how two different people came to Jesus and only one of them got to experience his power. Two different people came to Jesus, which really represents in a lot of different ways, two ways that we can relate to God, two ways that we can approach God to, to get something, and yet only one of them experienced his power. Another walked away without his power. And if you've been here for a while, we, we actually looked at one of these stories, but we talked about kind of some different aspects of it. And today I put these side by side because the Bible puts them right next to each other, really in contrasting these two different ways to approach God. And many of us will see, maybe I lean towards this way instead of this way. And if we want God's power, we need to experience how he says that we can have it. So let me read to you both of these stories, and then we'll kind of go through them and see the different contrasting marks. Luke 18, 18 to 23. A ruler, and in other places, uh, it calls him the rich young ruler in other gospels. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Should have waited till the kids were, you know, they, they should dismiss them after that. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. That's story one. Second story, right after this, Luke 18, 35 through 43. As he, that's Jesus, approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So they called out. So he called out, excuse me. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those in front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see and he began to follow him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So let's start with this question. Who is God's power for? And so often the who is easily missed. It's easily missed of who that's for. And the person that missed it here, the kind of person that misses God's power, if we kind of contrast these two stories, the kind of person that missed God's power was the rich ruler. And if you think about that guy's life, 
if you think about what it said about him, and we don't know tons about him, but if you think about the stuff that it gave us about him, it's someone who's a leader. It's someone who is religious, someone who has followed God's law for since their youth. So we could say that's someone who has grown up in church and tried to follow God and tried to obey all God's commandments. It's a, it's a moral person, right? It's a good, moral, wealthy person. Someone that probably a lot of us might aspire to be like. Some, someone that probably many of us match that profile. Maybe a leader, a good person, a moral person, maybe been in church for most of your life. Someone who is even humble coming to Jesus saying, I'd like to learn. And the warning in this story is if we see ourselves in that profile at all, the warning is this person walked away without experiencing God's power. This is the kind of person that actually oftentimes, and all throughout, not just this story, all throughout, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, the people that are the experts in the law, these people are the ones that actually missed out on God's power so often. It is the good, the moral, the wealthy, the leaders that actually miss out on God's power. You could be a really good person. You could be very moral. You could come to church all the time. You could serve and give and check all the right boxes and have a life that people say, I want that life. And yet, just be you without God's power. Just live life by yourself without the power that God wants to bring to it. And so when we talk about who God's power is for, I think to begin with, any time that we read stuff about, and I know this is especially true for me as a, as a pastor, anytime I read about the religious leaders or those people have to say, okay, I'm probably like those people in some way. And so to humble my heart to receive what God has for me. Second, who is God's power for? The person that easily misses it is that man, but the person that got it was the begging blind person. And you see how these are almost opposites. A rich ruler, and it said about the blind man that he was begging on the side of the road. Someone who is opposite social stratosphere, right? People that are opposite almost in every way, and yet it was the begging blind man that received God's power. It was him that actually got God's power. And this happens all throughout the book of Luke. It's the outcast that receives God's power. It's the demon-possessed man. It's the Gentiles who were outside of God's family, the non-Jewish people. It's the sinners and tax collectors. It's the poor and blind. It's those that are in need that receive God's power all the time. The suffering people the stigmatized people. And Luke continually emphasizes this reversal. The people that we would think are going to experience life with God are the ones that don't. And the people that are in need and hungry for someone else are the ones that do, which means this. If you are ever, and I don't know everybody in this room or who's watching online, if you're ever unsure if God's power is for you, 
if you've ever thought, I don't know if that's for me, maybe it's for those who have been more educated about stuff like this, maybe, you know, I didn't grow up in church, I'm really new to all this kind of stuff, or I haven't been in church in a long time, or I'm just not naturally a religious person, or ah, I just, it's hard for me, I'm not really like that, or I've had a past, or, or man, my life is really hard, and I don't just have the kind of community and relationships. If, if you've ever felt at all like that, The book of Luke over and over and over and over again says those are the people that most easily experience God's power. If you've ever felt like maybe you are on the outside, the book of Luke is saying it's especially for you. Now, it's true for for all of us. We can all receive God's power. and, And I think this is such good news because it also means that in any time that you are going through weakness, in any time that you are going through suffering, in any time where you are feeling even the weight of your own sin and feel like maybe that keeps you from God's power, Jesus is actually moving towards you. Jesus loves moving towards the weak, love moving towards the suffering, love moving towards those that are in sin. So who God's power is for is this. The people that get to experience God's vision of community and kingdom community, it's for any of us that see our need. It's for any of us that say, I need you. If you put those people side by side, one of them was very self-sufficient, and one of them knew how much they were in need. And any time that you and I want to experience God's power, it starts with, a humility that says, I need you. That's where the Bible says in many places that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is, listen, the condition of you experiencing God's power is not that you are moral. It's not that you've arrived in life. It's not that you are finally have it all together. It's that you are humble and know the need that you have. That's where it begins, knowing that our self-sufficiency won't cut it. So who is God's power for? It's for those of us that humble ourselves, knowing our need. But secondly, how do we actually experience it? How do we experience God's power? One of the most common ways to miss it in our life, one of the most common ways to miss what God wants to do in your life, one of the most common ways to miss even the kingdom community vision that God has for you, or one of the most common ways to miss what God wants to do in your family, in your marriage, in your friendships, in the difficult relationships that you have, one of the most common ways to miss it is to approach God or to approach Jesus as good teacher. That's how he comes to him, if you remember. He comes to him, the rich young ruler, and he approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher. And right on top of that is to really view Christianity as what must I do? Those go together. If Jesus is a good teacher, then we will come to him saying, teach me, what must I do? That is the heart, that is the question, that is the mentality that the rich ruler brought to Jesus, and it actually left him missing God's power. It's to come to Jesus as a good teacher and to approach the way that we relate to God as what must I do? Let me explain this. If you you think that Christianity mainly is I read the Bible 
and say, Jesus, what do I do? That's like this. If you think that Christianity is mainly about the things that you do, even good things like loving God, loving people, trying to be like Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, trying to join Jesus in what he's doing in the world, all the different good things that this guy even lists, saying, I've done this since my youth. If we view Christianity and if our approach to God is mainly, the main way we, we relate to him is he's a good teacher that tells me what to do. So I come to him to help me live a better life, to improve in my relationships, to improve with my struggles, to improve with my sin, to help me figure life out. I want to try my best to follow him. I want to do the things that he has told me to do. If that's how you mainly think about your relationship with God, you will miss out on God's power. Because what it ultimately results in is an uncertainty. Have I done enough? He's a good teacher, and he's taught a lot of information. What must I do? Have I done enough? Oftentimes, it gives us an uncertainty in our relationship with God. Have I done enough to please him? Have I done enough that he loves me? Have I done enough that he counts me faithful? Have I done enough that I'm in his family? Have I done enough? Have I listened and experienced his teaching enough? Have I loved people enough? Have I served enough? Have I been faithful in the world doing the things he says to do enough? It leaves us uncertain in our relationship with God. Often it leaves us cold in our relationship with God. Meaning we know God's there, we might even know he loves us, but we're not really sure that we love him. Because he's kind of the one that constantly is telling us just what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. And we're never really sure where we stand. So there's often a coldness when you think about your relationship with God. There's often a distance. Oftentimes, there's not really any joy with God. And so we pursue all sorts of joy and pleasure elsewhere oftentimes which leads to sin, and we wonder, I don't even know how I got here. I wanted to be obedient to God. I wanted to do what he said, but because there's lovelessness, then we actually don't even follow him. We don't even obey him. It actually ends up unraveling. It can also result in just a burdenness and stress that we live with, always trying to please God, always trying to do whatever it is. When we live with what must I do as our banner, it becomes a burden. And our faith and our Christianity isn't a source of joy. It's a source of, it's a source of life-suckingness, whatever word there is for that. And then we wonder, why do we lack the power? Why do we lack the power to actually experience all of God's vision in our life? Why do we lack the power to change? Why do we lack the power for wisdom in, in what we're trying to figure out in our life? We wonder. We live without the power. I don't know if that, if that rings true at all for you when you think about your relationship with God. But if you primarily think in this way, this is the kind of life that it will oftentimes result in. Whether you are able to do it really, really well, you might be really, really proud 
and self-righteous, but still lacking joy, or whether you fail at it constantly, lacking joy. This is what it leads to. But then we see, in contrast to this man, we see that the blind man comes to Jesus, and he sees him differently. He doesn't see him as a good teacher. What the blind man says is he approaches Jesus. It's actually interesting because they say to him, he says, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is here. But then he changes it when he talks to Jesus. And he says, he has a, he has a different kind of view of who Jesus is. He has a faith in who Jesus is. He sees him rightly and he calls him son of David. You see, the, the rich ruler approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, The blind man, even in the face of other people saying, this is just Jesus from such and such city, the blind man says, no, wait a minute. I know who that is. That's the son of David. Now, that's a term that probably doesn't mean much to us, but for those in this time period, the Jews awaiting the Messiah, and I was tempted to kind of walk through all sorts of stuff in the Old Testament, but I want to just show you a couple snapshots. Because what son of David means is they, are, they were waiting and they were longing for this promised king in the line of David that would come. And the things that he would do, the Old Testament is filled with the prophecies of this son of David one day coming. Let me give you a couple of things that show you how different it is than just good teacher. Here's what it says. Isaiah 9, this is a famous kind of Christmas verse. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. It's going to tell you that the son of David is the one that does this, but just listen to what it's saying. You've enlarged the nation, increased its joy. So the son of David is going to get rid of darkness. He's going to bring light into darkness. He's going to increase joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. So someone that saves and releases from slavery. And the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's to say there will be peace. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. That's to say he's, he will be a king. He will rule the government. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David. That's that son of David language. And over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness From now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That's a vision of what the son of David will do. He will bring joy where there's gloom. He will bring light where there's darkness. He will bring justice where there's oppression. He'll bring slavery where, excuse me, he'll bring freedom where there's slavery. He'll bring all of this. He'll be a wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. All of this is what he will do. Ezekiel 37. They will not defile themselves anymore. This is what will happen when the son of David comes, that God's people will actually live in purity. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will 
cleanse them. You want to be forgiven. You want to experience God's purification, God's cleansing. It says the son of David does this. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David, and this is not the David, he's already gone, but it is the son of David, will be king over them. And there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. God's presence, God's leadership, God's shepherding, which implies leadership and care and protection and comfort and all of that. He says, here is what will happen when the son of David comes. So one man says to him, good teacher. The other one is told, oh, that's Jesus from the city of Nazareth. And he says, son of David. All of that is packed into that title, that that man approaches Jesus, seeing him as the one that brings joy and justice and leadership and peace and counsel and freedom and deliverance and salvation. That's what he sees. That's a very different way to relate to God than just good teacher. He sees him as the son of David. And all of that stuff that we read in the Old Testament, Jesus is the son of David that comes, that accomplishes that for us on the cross. That through the cross, through Jesus' death and resurrection, that is a gift that he gives to us. All that it just talked about there, that we experience in part now and one day fully in the future when the kingdom is fully established. This man had faith and saw that. And the irony of all that is that he's a blind man. The irony and really kind of the, the lesson for us, and really he's a model for us, is that he was blind and he saw way more clearly. He, in the very beginning of Luke, it talks about David. It talks about Jesus being the son of David and he's in the line of David. And there's kind of a couple different chapters right in the birth stories of Jesus in the city of David. It uses all this language to set Jesus up as the son of David in the first few chapters of Luke. And then it doesn't really talk about it again. And no one says anything about it. No one acknowledges Jesus like that. And now we're in chapter 18. And the first person to actually reconnect the dots, the first person to actually see it clearly is a blind man. The first person to confess Jesus is the son of David that gets it, that sees it the right way, is someone that is blind. Now, this is actually a great model for you and I because how did this man have faith? How did he have faith? How did he see? He didn't see with his eyes. Interesting, right? He had never seen Jesus do things, but what had happened when they said it's Jesus of Nazareth, obviously he must have heard about Jesus. He must have heard the stories. He must have heard of some of what Jesus taught and spoke about who he was and what he came to do. He must have heard of some of the, the miracles of what he had heard. And what that did was create in him a faith. He had heard. And that allowed him, through the eyes of his heart, to see. Now the same is how you and I actually experience Jesus. Because I don't think anyone in this room has actually physically seen Jesus. And if you claim that, that might be interesting. We haven't physically seen Jesus. How do we get the faith to know that he is the son of David? Get the faith to believe? 
the same way he did. It's actually through hearing. And this is what the Bible says later in the New Testament. Let me show you a couple places that it says this. Oh, sorry, I'll come back to that. It says this. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, so talking to Christians now after Jesus, which is you and I, though you have not seen him, you love him. So you have never physically seen Jesus. You never walked with him. He never made you breakfast on the beach like he did for his disciples. You never saw him do the feeding of the five thousand. You, you never saw any of that. You haven't seen him, but you can still love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. There's faith that you have. And you rejoice. There's a joy that actually comes along with that. With inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is to see without actually seeing the salvation of your souls. And then Romans, Paul says it like this, but not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith, seeing Jesus rightly, knowing who God is rightly, comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. This is the same thing that the blind man experienced. He had faith. He's a model for you and I, because though he didn't actually see it happening, something happened where he heard the testimony about Jesus. He heard the testimony about who Jesus was. And what that did for him, what that did for him was the Holy Spirit allowed what he had heard about Jesus to connect with everything he knew about the son of David and to say, this is who he is. This is who Jesus is. The Spirit made it come alive to him. And he does the same thing for you and I. Which is why then, the way that this man actually relates to Jesus, I put it up here before, the way he relates to Jesus is different than what must I do. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? See how different that is? If you view Christianity as what must I do, and Jesus is a good teacher, or if you view him as a savior, the son of David, who approaches us and actually says to us, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it doesn't mean that he's a genie. It doesn't mean that he just grants whatever wishes that we have. But it means that God's fundamental heart is a heart that approaches us and says, what do you want me to do for you? I'm someone that comes not to take, but to give. I'm someone who is the savior that brings justice and peace and counsel and love and freedom and joy. That's who I am. And so the only way you can relate to me is not, what can I do for you? Imagine someone that's the son of David with all of those tie, all of that stuff it says, and then us coming to him and saying, so what must I do? And he's saying, what do you mean? I've come to do something for you. I've come to do something to save you. I've come to do something to change you. I've come to do something for your life. How we experience God's power, we have to relate to him, not the way the rich ruler did, which is, what can I do, good teacher? But to come to him saying, I need something from you. I need your salvation in my life. I need your peace in my life. I need your forgiveness in my life. I need your joy in my life. I need you to do something for me. I need to receive from you. I relate to you, not as just a teacher that tells me how to live, but that as a savior that enters my life and changes whatever it is that I'm experiencing whatever it is that I'm going through. And the way that you and I get that 
is the same way as the blind man. It's through a faith that hears because we don't physically see it. Which means if you want to experience God's power, you have to hear God's word. You have to hear and through that see who Jesus is which comes as we read the Bible and see and hear who he is. It comes at church. It comes as we're in smaller groups, like our life transformation groups that we have, where we're reminding people, here's who Jesus is. Here's who God is. And what the Holy Spirit does is he takes the hurt that we have. He takes the longings that we have. He takes the stress and the burdens and the frustrations that we have. And he takes who Jesus is. And he shows us how those connect. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Are you anxious? Let me show you who I am. What do you want me to do for you? I can show you that I'm a God in control of all things. Are you impatient? What do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to show you how patient I am with you? How tender I am with you? Do you struggle to forgive? Look at who I am as the one that has forgiven you. Look at who I am as the one that has had grace for you. You see, the way that we experience God's power is by seeing Jesus, but not with our eyes, but through the eyes of faith, where the Holy Spirit takes whatever issue we have and shows us, here's who he is. And what that does is make our heart come alive, and it gives us the joy and the power that we want. See, if you're trying by yourself, and maybe the way that you approach your faith or your Christianity or whatever issues you have is, I just need to try harder at this. I just need to learn more or work harder or do better or any of that kind of stuff. If that's kind of how you approach it, you'll never experience the power. But if you approach your faith, your life, saying, I need someone else from the outside. I can't do it by myself. Then he begins to change us. And that's the final thing that I want to show you here is what God's power does. What does God's power do in our life? God's power is for the humble that say, I need you. The way we experience it is by seeing whatever issues we have and seeing who he is and allowing the Holy Spirit to make those come together. Seeing him not as teacher, but as savior. And what does it do? What does it lead to? Where does it end up? For the rich ruler, what did it say about him? It said he left and became extremely sad. That's the result of living this kind of life. That's why I keep linking together that it's joyless when we approach our faith this way. This man came to Jesus as a good person, and he came to Jesus humble, saying, what must I do? You're a good teacher. And yet the result in his life, he walked away sad, extremely sad. Not experiencing the power that you and I want, not experiencing the life that you and I want. This happens to us when we listen to God's word and we don't trust him. This happened to us when we we listen to what God says and we're not sure that that's really gonna do anything. We're not sure that actually coming to him, seeing who he is can actually change anything. I'm too busy for that. I'm too stressed for that. I got too much going on in my life. I've got, I can't really kind of pause and say, okay, my heart needs to see who Jesus is. I just need to get on with it. And then yet the result in our life is we're stuck. We're stuck sad. We're stuck stressed. We're stuck not changing. We're stuck joyless. We're stuck without power. 
and we wonder what's going on. It, this happens when we make excuses or delay, delay the listening to God's voice, delay seeing who he is, delay allowing him to interact with our lives. Anytime that kind of coming to God seems like a chore or seems like it won't do anything, and then we're stuck in a cycle, though, where nothing changes, where we don't have the joy and power we want. That's that side of it. And what was the result? What did God's power do in this man's life? It ends by saying he followed Jesus and went away glorifying God, which is to say he saw how amazing God was. He saw how good God was. He saw how, how loving and gracious and powerful the son of David actually was. His, his life became different. He actually followed, which means now he began to obey and follow Jesus and live life with Jesus and become one of his followers and all of that stuff and filled with joy. That's the result that this way of relating to God leads to. Because when we see him rightly for who he is and then experience that in our life, we're changed. And then we want, look, the, the, the rich ruler didn't actually want to obey the instructions that Jesus gave to him anyway. Because he hadn't experienced the character and the power of who he was. This man experiences the salvation and the power of who he is and then wants to go with him. Wants to follow him. Wants to obey him. Wants to serve him. See, there's a lot of things in your, your life and in my life where we say, okay, I want to forgive people or I want to be patient with people or I want to serve people or I want to be less selfish with people or whatever it is, whatever way that you would like your relationships to be different. And we say, I want to follow Jesus in those ways, but we don't have the power to do it. We don't have the power to do it because we're not relating to him as a person that's a savior versus a teacher. When we actually relate to him the way the blind man did, we experience the power to actually then do all the different things that we've been talking about in this series, whether that's a humility or forgiveness or patience. All of that stuff happens as we see Jesus in those ways as Savior for us, to us. So where is it that you want to change? Where is it that you struggle? Maybe. Some of those places where we keep getting stuck is because we're only using external pressure on ourselves. You should be better than this. Okay, this year's going to be the year. This month's going to be the month. Whatever it is, we use external pressure instead of having an internal power that says, I want to follow him. I've seen who he is. God wants in our life for us to joyfully follow him, not to live with sadness, not to hear his word and walk away or for have faith just be kind of a grudging chore. All right, I should do this better. I should try harder. I know I should. God, that's not what God wants for any of us. He wants this for us. And then it also says about this man that people around him gave glory to God. People around him were praising God. That's what God intends for our life. He intends for us to come humbly to him and see who he actually is as savior and then that to lead to a joyful obedience. The kingdom community that he desires for us. Us being changed and people around us being changed. So we want in our life, not just a vision. Not just to see the Olympics. Not just to have a phone 
but have no power. We want not just a vision, but we want power. You and I want the power to actually experience the kingdom community that he has for us. Jesus says in this story, as we look at both of these kind of side by side, there's one man that came to Jesus and didn't experience the power. There's one man that came to Jesus and did experience the power. They're two very different ways of approaching God and experiencing God. And the only way that you and I can experience this vision is if we have God's power. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you didn't get the little cups on, on the way in, they're in, in the back and you can grab them. And when we take communion, what we're doing is remembering. We're remembering the salvation that Jesus gives to us. We're remembering that he is the son of David. We're remembering that he has a beautiful vision of community, that he wants to bring light into darkness, that he wants to bring freedom where there's slavery. We're remembering all of that. We're remembering that on the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to purchase that for us. Jesus didn't die on the cross and say, I have some things to teach you. He died on the cross and said, I'm here to save you. This is who I am. This is how you can relate to me. So as you take communion, we remember this. And if, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to pray to him. To say, okay, if that's who you are, if, if it's not just that you're for the good and the powerful and those on the inside, if that's who you are, if you're not just a good teacher and it's not just what must I do, but you're someone that says, what can I do for you? Then I want you to save me. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to, to pray that, to interact with him. If you are a Christian, we need this constantly. We need this over and over again, which is why Jesus said, when we take communion, do this in remembrance of me. Because we need to remember. He's not just a good teacher. Yeah, he taught all sorts of great things. But that's not who he mainly is. He's a savior. He's a savior that wants to enter into our lives and change everything. And so as you take communion, humble yourself, pray to him, come to him, ask him to do this in you again. There is much that God desires for us. There's much beauty in a vision he has, but that can only be experienced with his power. So let me pray for us and then give you some time to take communion. And I'll also be in the back if anyone would like prayer for anything. Father, I thank you that you are a good God and you're not just a teacher. You are a savior, Jesus. You are the one that sees every sickness, suffering, hurt, longing. You see all of that in our lives and you want to save not just as a one-time event, but you want us to relate to you as the God that enters in and engages with us. I thank you that that's who you are, Jesus, that that's who you reveal yourself to be. And I pray that even as we sing and as we take communion and remember who you are, that those truths would go deeper into our hearts. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.